You ever go see like a big blockbuster superhero movie and think like, man, this is great, except for the fact that like all the female characters are super one dimensional and, and used as crutches. There's a new original podcast from MailChimp called Going Through It, where where 14 different women tell 14 super dynamic, compelling stories about their lives. You can subscribe and listen now wherever you listen to your podcasts. I was working last Tuesday morning when an aunt of mine sent me a message. She said her best friend's aunt and daughter had died in one of the hotel bombings in Sri Lanka. The whole family was at the Shangri-La Hotel in Colombo for an Easter buffet. Her friend's aunt and daughter went to get dessert, and then the bomb went off. The two of them died. Everyone else in the family lived. The two of them died because they went to get dessert. My aunt sent me a selfie her friend's daughter had posted on Facebook minutes before she died. Everyone's smiling. Everyone's happy. These messages my aunt sent kind of destroyed me. Last week, I had to go pretty quickly from make sure family in Sri Lanka is okay to make a podcast about the attacks. Hearing this one tragic story forced me to sort of slow down and think about what was lost. Roel Raymond, the reporter from Roar Media in Colombo I spoke to last week, she more or less went through the same thing. Um, I think it's been, for me personally, really, really, uh, I can't say, I don't know how to, how to say it. I mean, it took its toll. Let's say a week later, it took its toll. By last evening, I was at the brink of collapse. But um, I don't think I was really thinking about it at that time. It was more about getting the news out really fast, finding out what was happening, not just for myself, but also for other people who were following and wanting to know and uh, fielding a lot of calls, taking a lot of calls, going to as many places as I could. Um, So, yeah, I was very busy uh, and I didn't really have time to even um, perhaps accept or understand uh, on a human level um, or personal level what had happened. And uh, it's only now there's some sort of, there's, there's, there's a sense of anxiety, which I can't really explain. Uh, there's uh, a lot of pain. Uh, I'm very sad about what has happened to my country. I think people have an understanding now of what has happened, I think also because this age of Uh, social media, people are using VPNs to get online and piecing together what happened based on information that's being reported. So although the government hasn't in many cases explicitly said this is what happened or this is the person behind it, people have already pieced together the story. In Sri Lanka's east, police were edgy today as they raided a base of an Islamist group linked to last week's devastating terror attacks. It seems that this one guy um, the leader of a local Muslim extremist group, the National Tawid Jamaat. Uh, his name is Zaran Hashim. He was an imam. Um, it seems that he was uh, the mastermind uh, behind this. A lot of his family members were involved. We heard that his sister, one sister, who somehow seemed to have escaped all of this and didn't really know what was going on, um, had told the media that members in her family had died in this whole fiasco. Fifteen people have died, including six children, after a security operation in eastern Sri Lanka. Troops raided a suspected safe house close to the hometown of the alleged ringleader behind last weekend's attacks. 
Gunmen opened fire on security forces before three men detonated explosives. What more do we know about this guy, Mohammed Saran Hashim? So what we're hearing is that um, that he was born in Kartankuri in the in the eastern province. That he didn't come from a very affluent uh, family. Um, we hear that he had his early education at a madrasa, and how as he grew up, he uh, began to question uh, what was being taught to him because he had a different interpretation and opinion. And uh, sub- it got to the point that he was uh, kicked out of that madrasa. We learned that later he got very much more fundamentalist in his thinking. Then he um, he set up the National Tawid Jamaat himself, set up um, mosques in the name of the National Tawid Jamaat. But it got to the point where even the National Tawid Jamaat kicked him out later for his sort of radical extremist ideology. Um, we heard that he was a very persuasive speaker, that he would get as many as two or 3,000 people to listen to him. And a lot of his preaching happened online, on Facebook, uh, on YouTube. Um, so it seemed that um, he was just, I don't know, from my layperson's point of view, an angry, misguided man with a score to settle. And there's been these reports that he had ties to like one of the wealthiest spice traders in Sri Lanka? What's all that about? Of the um, suicide bombers, two were sons of a wealthy spice merchant who was very well accepted in the business circles, who was accepted in the political circles. The speculation, even from the prime minister, is that it's quite possible that this man didn't know what his sons were doing, uh, although he is also now under arrest. Hmm. Last week when we spoke, we talked a bit about how the government had warnings about these attacks but failed to act on them. What more have we learned about how much the government knew? Well, the government has now confirmed um, repeatedly that the the, the intelligence um, was definitive. The prime minister himself actually did confirm that this was intelligence that was received. Uh, What's even more damning is the fact that India confirmed or India said that they had sent three alerts, uh, the last of which came just hours before the attack. Um, So the warnings had definitely been communicated to Sri Lankan authorities, um, but they were not acted on. I have explained before how on a political theater this this turned out to be a blame game because the prime minister thinks the president should be held responsible for this lapse in security whereas the president thinks that the prime minister is the one who weakened the the country's um, intelligence uh, by going after military personnel for alleged war crimes. So there was this spat initially um, midway during the week with both parties pointing fingers at each other. And of course, the government now, maybe it's overcompensating. It's certainly taking many actions on many fronts. Could you run us through everything the Sri Lankan government is now doing to investigate this and perhaps prevent an attack like this from happening again? Yeah, it does seem like they're they're, they're on overdrive, in fact, um, in ensuring that this doesn't occur again. And um, I'm pleased to note that even if belatedly, um, whatever has to kick in has kicked in. Um, There's some 7,000 soldiers, army soldiers in Colombo alone. 
the rest of the army is deployed all over the island. There's extensive search operations uh, ongoing. Uh, the president said every house would be searched, a database would be set up so that people know if anyone unknown to the area um, moves in. Mm, there's naval patrolling going on, there's air surveillance, sniffer dogs on the roads, barricades in certain areas. All the key places of business and public places are definitely being protected. Um, in addition, the president, um, under emergency regulations, uh, not only did he ban the national, or said he would ban the national Tawid Jamaat and the Jamiatul Milatul Ibrahim, another nationalist uh, Muslim um, extremist organization. He also said that um, all face covering, he didn't use the word burqa, but he did say all face covering would be banned under emergency regulations. The emergency measure was announced by the president's office last night. It had been discussed last week, but postponed until government officials had a chance to consult with Muslim clerics. Were any of the terrorists who perpetrated these attacks wearing face coverings? Um, no, definitely they weren't. Uh, however, the fear of more attacks, and there have been uh, more internal security memos leaked to the public saying there would be um, attacks. In fact, two other Muslim sects were supposed to be targets of these attacks. I think with this ongoing fear of more attacks, it's becoming more and more important for the police and the armed forces to be able to identify people um, and it's, for, I think, for that reason that they want uh, people to no longer cover um, their faces. They, they haven't said anything about the hijab, so it's not about covering your head. It's just that they want the face visible. I think it's mostly to do with tracking down people and just easy, um, easy identification. Do you have any sense of how Muslims in the country feel right now? I mean, I, I, I do genuinely feel that they feel violated, but at the same time, they are very cooperative because, unfortunately, I feel like the biggest victims to this attack are the Muslims themselves um, because one extremist group of Muslims perpetrated a series of attacks that has caused the entire Muslim community to be looked on with suspicion. Even the most generous-minded person is still going to be wary now going forward, which is, for me, possibly the saddest thing. How about the rest of the country? I mean, the government reported last week that they were planning on going door to door to root out terrorists, which I don't know if I've ever heard anything like that from any country after a terrorist attack. How how are tensions in the country right now? But I think, strangely enough, people um, perhaps feel safer with the armed forces coming door to door. Um, because then um, you can establish the fact that you have nothing to hide and people who do have something to hide will be caught out. Um, also, you have to, I think, the main thing that we need to, like a lot of people need to understand is Sri Lanka has gone through this before. In fact, there are some complaining they don't see enough in some areas and they wished there would be more armed forces out there on the ground. So I don't think that has been received very badly. I think people are just very keen to ensure they are secure. There's high tension. There's definitely high tension. People are avoiding uh, public places. They're avoiding stepping out as much as possible. Um, If you are running an errand, you try to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. You don't dawdle. 
um, it's the topic on everyone's mind it's the first thing you talk about it hasn't been forgotten the fear is very real and very present that hasn't i think abated but people are being forced to get on with their lives it's been a week now uh, the streets are a lot quieter but people are now being forced out of necessity to get back to working and getting along with their lives but the fear is present and they are afraid that at some point something will happen and there will be another attack Roel Raymond covers Sri Lanka for Roar Media. You can find her work at roar.media. The Sri Lankan government is taking lots of action, but all told, it might be taking the wrong kind of action. That's next on Today Explained. So I've given you some general information about the Going Through It podcast from MailChimp. Here's a, here's a bit more on the specifics. There's an episode up right now you can listen to featuring Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton talks about what happened in her life when she was afraid she couldn't hack it and wanted to give up. Ann Friedman, the host of the show, talks with Hillary about her imposter syndrome. Did you know Hillary Clinton had imposter syndrome? They also talk about the intimidation that comes with bigger challenges and and pushing forward and pushing for bigger things instead of quitting. Super powerful people. They're just like us. Anyway, the whole deal with going through it, Anne sits down with writers, comedians, politicians, musicians to hear about the pivotal moments in their lives and careers and relationships when they had to decide whether to quit or keep going. All of the episodes of the show are out now so you can subscribe and just consume the thing all in one evening or a weekend or over the course of a very emotional week. Amarnath Amarasingham, when we spoke about the attacks in Sri Lanka last Monday, you said this didn't look homegrown. Outside groups had to be involved, and it turns out you were right. There were links to the Islamic State. Why would the Islamic State want to mess with a relatively peaceful tropical island in the Indian Ocean? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the question is why did ISIS target Sri Lanka? It's much more so that there are local groups in a variety of different countries, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, who are um, kind of galvanized by local grievances, who are making contact and... um, uh, interacting with members of these transnational terrorist groups who are using it for kind of branding their own own movement. Because for ISIS, it's very much part of their repertoire to attack tourist sites and attack Christian uh, communities because they realize that it creates much more media coverage. It creates much more kind of international coverage as opposed to being if these local groups had attacked uh, the Sri Lankan government site or something like that, which would have made a splash maybe for a day or two and then vanished. Whereas now you've killed several citizens of several countries. Uh, you've, you've kind of galvanized the global uh, conservative Christian movement as well to say that there is a ongoing war on Christians internationally that um, local governments are not doing enough to protect. And so this you know feeds into several different narratives happening in North America and Europe as well. 
Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The holiest day of the Christian calendar turned to tragedy yesterday, as you know, in Sri Lanka. This was a message that there's basically a war on Christianity from a certain segment of the Muslim population. It is literally a holy war. And so Sri Lanka seemed like as good a place as any to stir up religious tensions? Yeah, I mean, I think it feeds into kind of long-running Islamophobia in the country. I think we forget sometimes that brown people can be just as racist as white people, right? And that there is kind of a long-running anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-Muslim hatred in the country. I mean, regular Tamil people and regular Sinhalese people often also feel very kind of uneasy about uh, the niqab and, and, and face coverings and so on, just like, you know, you would have most people in Europe or a good chunk of people in Europe and North America would similarly have sentiments like that. Um, and I think just a kind of response to this scale of an attack, I think, is also creating this impression that there are kind of simple solutions to this. You can just do one or two things like ban the niqab and all of a sudden we'll be back to normal, you know, and we'll be back to a kind of peaceful situation, which I think is going to prove wrong (laughs) pretty quickly. Sri Lanka is no stranger to suicide bombers. Is Mm -hmm. it fair to say that these attacks coming from international religious extremists are a new thing for the country? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was a there's an element to which the violence during the civil war was normalized. Um, people had kind of gotten used to being uneasy, and kind of got spoiled by ten years of of relative peace. And therefore, now there's this newfound fear that this isn't just a short term thing or just a one off attack. That this is part of a longer campaign that they need to be vigilant for. And part of the way you're vigilant for it is to you know, stamp down on minority communities and minority rights. I think that's going to prove to be a not a smart choice and not a smart move. But I think generally the way this country goes and the, generally the way the politicians kind of play crisis sometimes um, is to violate human rights and with uh, heightened surveillance and heightened harassment of community members, which, you know, one would hope that after 10 years of peace and 26 years of conflict, you know, you've kind of learned the lesson and not to do that kind of stuff. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually help. Um, but as we're seeing, I, don't, I think none of the lessons of the past 30 years or so have been actually internalized by the government. I mean, what Roel was saying earlier was that, you know, some people actually feel much more secure right now in the country because the government is taking the kinds of actions it is, saying they're going to go door to door, saying no more face coverings. You're saying in what you've studied in your research on terrorism, that stuff doesn't work. Yeah, not only does that stuff not work, it actually further marginalizes the communities, further uh, creates resentment that they're somehow to blame for the violent actions of a few amongst them. I mean, a lot of the videos that I've seen on YouTube and and WhatsApp and Facebook of, of Muslim community members are unbelievably angry at the attackers because they realize, and there's a lot of sadness there about what's going to happen to the community. And and there's a lot of anger at the attackers to say, you know, you've you've basically taken the community back a thousand years. We're never going to be trusted again. We're never people are never going to look at the, us the same way again. Um, there's been rumors of kind of Muslims being registered in the north. There's been rumors of kind of individuals being kicked off buses because they're carrying a package that's uh, slightly larger than what people are comfortable with and things like that. And I, d- I don't think any of these things are um, going to help in the long term to kind of move things forward. What could the Sri Lankan government do 
to ensure peace in the country while not infringing on the human rights of, of Muslims in the country? They handled it somewhat well in terms of the social media crackdown and, and at least an attempt to kind of uh, stamp out misinformation and disinformation uh, online. But I think their real-life response has been um, a bit of a joke. It's just been political blame game and, and, and kind of figuring out a way to make this a national security issue. Whatever positive response is actually arising out of this attack has actually come from the Christian community, remarkably, where they've, particularly during Friday prayers, many in the community came out to say that they will protect the mosques from attack and make sure that these things don't happen. And so I think there's room for communities to kind of respond in those kinds of ways, but it could have really been supported and pushed from the top, but we haven't seen anything like that happening. From the top down, I mean, it's it's fundamentally important to make communities feel like they're part of the country, right? And I think Sri Lanka has always struggled with that from independence onwards to fully make sense of the minorities among them and minority political concerns among them um, because it has always been pitched as a single national Buddhist state um, and they didn't really know how to respond properly to kind of integrating communities. So that would have been the ideal response and that's been the ideal response when other countries have struggled through this where you hold national vigils, you, you have a national conversation about the place of minorities in the country, the, the importance of multiculturalism, diversity, pluralism. And since 9-11, but more recently since the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, you've seen too often people conflating the horrific acts of terrorism with the beliefs of an entire faith. And of course, recently we've heard inexcusable political rhetoric against Muslim Americans that has no place in our country. I've said many times, Mr. Speaker, we are a nation of 200 ethnicities 160 languages. We open our doors to others and say welcome. And the only thing that must change after the events of Friday is that this same door must close on all of those who espouse hate and fear. Welcome to your new home. Thank you. You'll find our winters are a little cold. The way Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada went to the airport after there was some controversy around Syrian refugees and accepting Syrian refugees to provide winter jackets to Syrian refugees who were landing at the airport. We got some stuff for you. Wonderful. We'll load you down with stuff. We're really out of words. How to thank you? You are home. Thank you. Welcome home. Thank you. Thank you. Things like that, I think, go a long way to kind of creating an important point of leadership to say, you know, this is what our country represents and, and this is what we're going to do, uh, regardless of what the kind of domestic controversy around these issues are. So some countries are kind of have a history of doing that, have a culture of doing that, where I think it's, it's very um, outside the norm to have those kinds of discussions in Sri Lanka to begin with. Amarnath Amarasingham is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. It's an organization that tries to come up with solutions to extremism and polarization around the world. I'm Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained.
Thanks to the MailChimp original podcast, Going Through It, for supporting Vox's original podcast, Today Explained. Going Through It features 14 different women talking about their great successes and their great setbacks and failures. You can subscribe and listen now wherever you listen to your shows.